The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 50 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. So last week was a, a really special week for Task Force 7 Radio. It was, it was the one-year anniversary of TF7 Radio. That's right, folks. We've been on the air already for a whole year and it's been really a wonderful ride thus far. I mean, we've had the opportunity to interview some of the most prolific and influential cybersecurity professionals in the world. We have some amazing co-hosts that joined us from time to time, and we're going to continue to have them on with us as we move forward with the show. And we've got to share a lot of information with tens of thousands of listeners, and their response to the show has been very humbling. It really has. So I just want to take some time out again to thank you so much for listening to the show Thank you for supporting the show, sharing the post on social media, subscribing to and sending the podcast to your friends. I see that all the time and I really appreciate it. And thanks for all the kind notes of support that I have received. It's been really, really helpful. And thank you so much. So we have uh, great things to come, folks. I, I can't share them with you right now about the show, but we got a lot of things uh, in mind uh, to, to do with this show moving forward. But we, we have big plans for the show. We got big plans for the TF7 Network. And the future is looking really exciting. I mean, it's really super soaked about it. Uh, so check us out, man. If you missed last week's episode, we had former Secret Service agent Robert Villanueva on the show with us. And Robert's a dear friend of mine from a former life. And he's one of the pioneers of the modern cyber intelligence strategies that we see implemented in organizations today. And he's also the original co-founder or, or, or a founder of the United States Secret Service Cyber Intelligence Section. So if you don't know what that is, that's a team of subject matter experts who are assembled to seek out, aggregate, and analyze intelligence in some of the most sophisticated cyber criminal organizations on the planet. So these are true adversaries of the United States votes, true adversaries of the West, adversaries to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And his work in the cybersecurity world has really meant something. And this is something we talk about a lot on this show, right? We talk about a sense of purpose you know, talk about wanting to live your life with a sense of purpose. And if you want to hear from someone who has walked the walk, right, who has lived their life and managed their career 
with a sense of purpose. I recommend you go back and listen to episode number 49 and hear what Robert has to say. You can listen to it anytime on playback, wherever you are in the world, folks. That's the beauty of internet radio. Former Secret Service agent Robert Villanueva on last week's episode. That's episode number 49, Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Well, I know you're going to be shocked about this, but I'm going to tell you. This is still the most frequent question I get about the show, folks. I see this on, on social media all the time. You can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at Task47Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fix. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out, folks. TF7 Radio playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So tonight is yet again another special episode of Task Force 7 Radio. This is our 50th episode of Task Force 7 Radio. That's, that's pretty special for us. And we've been, we've been pounding away pretty hard uh, for the last year. And we haven't missed any episodes. And I've been on every, every Monday night except for those holidays that fall on a Monday uh, for this year. But, you know, to celebrate this milestone, we're going to have someone very, very special on the show with us tonight. We're going to have Sammy Sajeri on, on, on with us tonight. Now, Sammy is the founder and president of the Cyber Defense Agency. And that's a premier professional services firm specializing, of course, in cybersecurity. So his clients include some of the largest players in both the public and private sectors, the big banks, the power companies, as well as the United States Navy, the Air Force, Department of Defense, even NASA. I mean, he's done business with the United States Department of Homeland Security, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and even DARPA. So. Sammy's been working in this field for a long, long time. He's been in, in the field for 35 years. He's got 35 years of experience in the cybersecurity space. And he's been quoted by or featured in, in just about every major news outlet there is for his work. And most recently, uh, he released a book that he, that he authored called Engineering Trustworthy Systems Get Cybersecurity Design Right the First Time. And we're going to be asking him a lot about that book uh, this evening. So he's got a master's degree in computer science from Purdue University. The director of the National Security Agency named him an NSA fellow in 1993 and 94, and he has published more than a dozen technical papers in the field of cybersecurity. So ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Sammy Sajeri. Sammy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Look, I'm really excited to have you on. I, you know, I read your book, um, and it's very fascinating. It's, it, you know, it's, 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 a, it's not a short read. It's a, it's, it's a long lead, but it's, it's got a lot of information in there, and uh, I, I really highly recommend it to anyone who wants to see what the gaps are in literature out there in the cybersecurity space. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tap your, your brain on a whole bunch of different things uh, since it, it seems that you've, uh, your experience runs the gamut in cybersecurity. So to kick this off, what trends are you seeing today when it comes to the newest threats in cybersecurity? 
Well, I think that um, attackers are um, are getting more sophisticated. So they used to attack sort of the simple thing, the application level, uh, meaning like email. Um, they would send an email warm, one of the first uh, attacks, and it was fairly simple, fairly straightforward, um, and not very well hidden. As time has progressed, um, attacks have become much more stealthy and much more weaponized, whether it's used for organized crime or whether it's used for nation state, um, they're getting much more sophisticated and starting to attack operating systems and even software below the operating systems. And so um, they're getting more clever. So do you see cyber organized crime groups and nation states colluding more now with this sophistication and their, their attack methods? Yes, I mean, well, so they, they collude amongst each other and between each other. And so um, attackers do a very good job of sharing uh, and building on the technology of the previous generation or the previous set of attackers. So there is sharing and there's also collusion between nation states and organized crimes in some cases where organized crime is, is doing the bidding either at some price or through some sort of arrangement with a nation state. So this book that you just recently authored, I mean, it's a great book. What inspired you to publish Engineering Trustworthy Systems? Well, so there, there, there are some gaps in the literature out there. Um, there are some very, very good books on theory, and there is a boatload of books on, on the practice of some narrow aspect of cybersecurity, like firewalls or antivirus. There's great books out there about those small aspects of what I call mechanisms of cybersecurity, but there's no really good book out there on the principles of cybersecurity design, so understanding fundamentally how to come at this holistically, because many, many of the failures I see out there are because somebody has considered the attack space, the kinds of ways attackers get in, too narrowly, and uh, they have kind of looked at it as a whack-a-mole, right? That they find a problem and they whack it, right? And then the, the, the mole comes up somewhere else, and so it's not very effective and not very efficient. So my idea is to help people understand the attack space, the mindset of the attacker, and the solution space. What, what, how do you weave together all of these solutions in an effective way to systematically defend your system? Yeah, we talk about that a lot on the show in terms of, you know, the strategies out there where we just find ourselves chasing our tail. And, um, you know, and, and, and on social media recently, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, what strategies really work and even organizational models. We've had in the previous episodes some talk about organizational models and how we need to think differently. And now we're going back to what maybe didn't work in the past to try to make that work better. So there's all kinds of, you know, I see the frustration out there in the industry. We talk a lot here about it, the inside of the threat, too. Uh, what, what do you think you can do to ensure that those people who are engineering and maintaining your electronic data and your information systems don't come back to sabotage those same systems. So there's, there's three general things that you can do. Uh, the first is prevent them, right? And, and that is once they're, they're done, lock their access out. And when they are accessing it, monitor the hell out of it, right? Because uh, their accesses are generally very, very highly privileged. So that's the second thing is have detection in place. Right, so uh, it's called intrusion detection. They have a lot of sensors out there to detect anomalies um, should they leave software behind that then does something. So you don't only monitor them while they're on, but even after they're on to look for exploitations. And, um, and the third thing to do is to tolerate. So if, they're, if they successfully attack the system, don't give them access everywhere. Don't give their software access everywhere. 
um, compartmentalized. Just sort of how like um, ships put bulkheads um, so that if uh, a ship takes some damage, it doesn't sink. Uh, the rest of the ship is okay. Uh, cybersecurity has the same sort of property will you, where you modularize and, and uh, partition your system so that privilege in one part doesn't equal privilege in all parts. Right. You know, I mentioned before the Gabeson literature, and you actually just mentioned it, and I want to go back to that as well uh, in your answer a couple of questions ago. I mean, what, what, what exactly are the gaping holes in the cybersecurity literature out there that are filled by this book? In other words, you know, what's the value proposition someone's going to buy this book that they're going to get out of, uh, you know, some, they're going to get that they didn't get out of a lot of the other books that are out there? So I, I think the key value, I guess there's two. One is understanding where risk comes from, how to analyze risk in, in a deep way to understand where adversaries can come at you and in a prioritized way. So adversaries can come at you a million ways, but some of them like, you know, attacking really high grade crypto, it's really tough and, and it's really not worth the effort because there's so many other ways in. And so I'm trying to teach people to understand how to evaluate and prioritize risk. That's number one. I think the other big value is, is in the orchestration, the weaving together of the many technologies. So um, a vendor might come in and say, here's a cool firewall that you should use. You know, you should buy a thousand of these. Okay, great. Um, firewalls are good, but they're only part of the solution to part of the attack space. And I think the big value proposition here is understanding how to weave together firewalls and antivirus and intrusion detection and all the other mechanisms out there, how to configure it, how to link it with security policy and bring together a defense in depth uh, uh, and a defense in breadth against the entire attack space. I don't think any other book out there does that. And that's, that's what I'm trying to bring to the table here. You know, I, I always talk about defense and death on this show, and I get some uh, very senior cybersecurity leaders uh, throughout the uh, industry sometimes tell me that defense and depth is out of date. And, you know, we go to, got to go to a different model. And I guess they talk about, you know, the de defense and death versus the kill chain. And I don't think they're, I guess you can talk about them in two distinct separate, you know, sort of strategies or, or frameworks. But do you think about them that way as there are two different frameworks? No, I don't. I, I think that they're very similar. And, you know, some people have a very narrow viewpoint of what defense and depth mean, right? So what, what some people mean is you got a firewall and then you've got an inner firewall and you got another inner firewall, right? And, um, and, and they call that model, castle and moat model. And they say that's out of date. And indeed, if that's all you're doing, that, that is out of date uh, and it is too narrow. But what I think of defense of um, the entire attack space. So a, a very, let's say, a kind of attack like a, um, I don't know, a stealthy virus attack. That's a class of attack. And I don't want just one mechanism to stop it. I want another mechanism to detect it if I fail to stop it. And then I want a third mechanism to, um, to, to essentially tolerate it and kick it out of my network, recover from the failure. And that's, that's what depth is to me. And I, I have a much broader definition and under that definition um, it's it's not obsolete it's a it's a timeless principle so I don't think I've asked any of my guests this question for so, quite some time um, I know I, I kicked off the, the pilot episode with talking about cyber warfare and I also with, with Matt was with Secretary Chertoff and I also talked about it with Richard Clark and, and maybe a few other people you know I mentioned it with Tom Pedro that was on a few times 
But what could global scale cyber warfare look like in a decade uh, in your mind? Well, if, if current trends continue, it could look pretty bad. Um, the, the power grids, um, telecommunications, finance, oil and gas, they're all very, very vulnerable infrastructures. And we don't seem to have a societal incentive uh, to secure them because the cost is, is borne by the people who are developing them, right? And so, um, and they don't want to bear that cost. And it's a societal cost. It, it's called the tragedy of the commons, right? It's a common risk to all of us, but um, it's, it's, uh, we're asking these people to bear that risk of a nation state attacking them. So if we continue on our current course, we could lose the power grid. 70% of the U.S. power grid could go down for not a day, not a week, six months, uh, because it takes that long to replace the physical infrastructure, which can be damaged through a cyber attack. You can blow up generators, you can blow up transformers through over-control. Cyber attack affects physical things. And that's, that's a reality that many people don't understand. It's not a matter of an attack working for a few minutes. It's a matter of damaging our infrastructure. And, and quite frankly, I see it as an existential threat to the sovereignty of nations, including the United States, which heavily depends on cyberspace. And that dependency is only getting more over time, which makes us even more vulnerable to these attacks. So, Sammy, I think that, you know, there's a lot of people saying the same thing that you're saying right now. I know we talk about it a lot on the show. What's it going to take for people to wake up? Is it going to take, and I hate saying this, and it's so unfortunate, is it going to take a monumental event, maybe event that you know, results in the loss of life for people to wake up to this threat? Unfortunately, I think the answer to your question is yes. I'm hoping it's not yes. Right, but, but one of the problems, and, and from a psychological perspective, is if we have not experienced pain from some event, um, it's not real, right? And, and so we've seen the, the suffering from a nuclear attack, and we want to avoid it, right? Because we've seen it in Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima. Um, cyber attacks can be that devastating on a national scale. Imagine the societal fabric breakdown, right? If you lose power 70% across the United States for six months, we saw it in Katrina where society broke down in a corner of the United States for three weeks and in and, and some places for three months. Imagine that times a thousand, right? So yeah, I'm afraid, you know, policymakers, there have been dozens of, of, uh, of wake-up calls, dozens of Defense Science Board reports, National Academy of Science reports, um, all sorts of reports have come out saying, this is a very, very serious problem. We really, really need to do something about it. And policymakers have failed to really address this as a priority national security existential threat. So I, I don't know, honestly, we keep trying. Uh, we never give up to try to get us to do the right thing. Uh, but it may, in fact, take a uh, what I would hope to be a sublethal event to our country um, with damages in the billions uh, before maybe we will wake up and say, yeah, you know, maybe that hurt enough that we really, really need to address this and make it a real threat. So, Sam, we have to take a little bit of time to go to commercial break, but we'll be right back to talk some more shop in just a few minutes. Um, so, hey, guys, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, 
as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number seven, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much needed and much awaited for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the founder and president of the Cyber Defense Agency, Sammy Sejeri. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the founder and president of the Cyber Defense Agency, Mr. Sammy Sejeri. So, Sammy, let's talk a little bit more about some of the bigger mistakes that people make when engineering a cybersecurity system. What say you about that? Well, I think um, the biggest mistake, I, well, the biggest one I think is that they underinvest because they don't understand the stakes. 
And so, um, for example, I think the average company invests around 3% of their IT budget in cybersecurity, whereas m most analyses suggest they should be up near 10%. So they're already hampering themselves by being you know, three times underinvested by, you know, by a factor of three. Um, so that's, that's the first problem. Um, the second problem is they tend not to be systematic in their approach. So um, the latest shiny object, uh, whoever, whatever vendor comes in the door or whoever's played golf with the CEO most recently, um, is the product that they buy. And that product is, is the answer to all questions, no matter what the question is. And um, because generally the C-suite doesn't really understand the breadth of the problem. And so um, understanding the breadth of the cybersecurity problem how attacks can damage their, their organization's mission, I think that's the fundamental failure and then how to systematically approach it. That, that's what I see. So why do you think some people tend to think about cybersecurity as purely a, technological, a techno, technological problem? I mean, it's, a, it's a technical issue to them. And, and do, you, do you think that, you know, well, I think it's bad. I think we all think that it's bad, but how bad is it? <laughs> well, you know, like... Technologists, they have a hammer, right? And, and so um, everything's a nail. And um, technology does solve a, a number of problems. And, and cybersecurity was invented by um, research engineers who um, saw this problem a very long time ago, uh, 35, 40 years now, uh, maybe even 45. So, um, so it tends to be technologically focused because technologists started it. And, uh, and it is born in technological space, right? It's, it's cyber systems, it's networks. And at the time, only geeks were on networks when, the, when networks first started. Only geeks had computers. And so uh, it's natural that it's a, a technology-focused problem. But, but the, the reality is that it's a sociological problem. It's a, it's a psychological problem. It's a decision theory problem. There's, there's a whole range of different kinds of problems. If you think, for example, about phishing attacks, right? That, that's a social engineering problem. That, that's a psychological issue. Um, the fact that people don't understand the nature of the threat and they'd rather not think about it because they haven't seen it and thinking about it's hard and unpleasant, that's a psychological problem that's in the way of making real change. So we really need an interdisciplinary approach to the problem and the, the technological origins of the discipline get in the way of that sometimes. So when you think about this as a, as a technical problem, like what do we have to do to get over this? Do we have to, do we have to actually mix in more talent that has, that have business skills with cybersecurity skills? I mean, do we need to start hiring more deputy CISOs with different skills than the CISO? So say for instance, if the CISO is an engineer, maybe the deputy is, is more business minded and the combination of those skill sets actually bring the organization to where it needs to be. Because um, I see that I see a lot of, of CISOs and deputy CISOs together that make really, really good teams. And when you combine their skill sets, it just seems like the organization's strategy is much more well-rounded. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a very good idea. I mean, some out-of-the-box thinkers um, who aren't technologists, but, but who understand the nature of, of sociology and psychology, for example, business is sort of an application of that, definitely, whether they're the deputy CISO or on the team or just bring in consultants. 
And even in the research world, I've strongly encouraged organizations like DARPA, um, and, and when I ran a program there, brought in people from outside the technological discipline to talk to and inform technological developers to help them understand that it's a broader problem and how technology and non-technology solutions can be woven together to, to synergize, to actually help each other out and not work in conflict to one another. So we were talking about before I was mentioning, you know, when I was talking about Robert Villanueva on the last show, having a sense of purpose. I know a lot of people in this industry like this space because they have a sense of purpose when they go to work because they're protecting critical infrastructures and what they, what they do actually means something. So how do cyber attacks pose an existential threat to our entire society? How, how would you define it? Well, I think what people generally, uh, the general public, I would say, has a perception that cyberspace is a, a place of convenience. Right, so if cyberspace is down, they, they cannot contact their Aunt Matilda, right, for a day. Um, or they can't go online and shop for something for a day. And that's inconvenient. What they don't really understand is that it's really a matter of um, the infrastructure that they depend on every day, like power and telephone, are so now dependent on computers that a failure in cyberspace is if a failure of society itself, right? Can you imagine waking up and, and the power is out, the phone's out, the ATMs are down, and you have no idea when it's coming back up again. You, you talk to your neighbor. If you have one, it's close enough to talk to. If you remember how to go knock on a door, some millennials don't know how to do, right? And you say, hey, you know, what about you? And you look around and the entire neighborhood is dark. That's the kind of existential threat that we're facing. And if you've got that for more than a week, two weeks, three weeks, now we're talking about the societal fabric tearing, where people, I mean, law enforcement, we saw this in, in Katrina. Law enforcement stayed home to protect their families. There were dead bodies floating in the streets because society fabric broke down. And so, you know, we can have the best military in the world, but if the heart of the country the, the infrastructure that's controlled by the civilian sector is severely damaged. What is the military going to be protecting? The country's gone. It's a, it's a Sun Tzu art of war kind of uh, attack where not a shot was fired, but our country is existentially damaged. Yeah, you make a good point about law enforcement staying home. I mean, I know a lot of, a lot of law enforcement didn't stay home. They, they went out there, but th this is true. You shouldn't make law enforcement pick between their, their families and their job and, and going out there. I mean, um, I think we should have a different response to these types of incidents in these areas when it comes to law enforcement. But when it comes to the cybersecurity space, I mean, look, we've seen it. In, like you mentioned, you mentioned a couple of hurricanes. I mean, like Hurricane Sandy hit the East Coast, and within 48 hours, people were pulling guns at each other at gas stations. Um, it's, it, it can get you know crazy very, very quickly when there's no gas, no power. Um, and so... You know, I really think that uh, people don't understand. I, I think sometimes they take for granted, you know, when they come home and then they turn the lights on, they, hit, they flip the switch and, and the light comes on, <laughs> you know, and the luxuries that we have and what could be a danger due to a cybersecurity attack, a successful cybersecurity attack. You know, in your book, you, you, were, you were pulling from a lot of your career experiences, which is it's pretty vast over the last 35 years or so. And your book provides a lot of wisdom from a lot of other people too, from IBM, Honeywell, I think Columbia University was in there. Uh, DARPA, obviously, you have a lot of experience with Carnegie Mellon, which we have a good relationship with, too. So, 
Does it surprise you that everyone knows these pieces of cybersecurity, but very few people really have a true command and complete knowledge of it? Yeah, no surprise at all, because uh, again, if you look at the history, you always, you always need to, whenever you want to examine a problem, look at the history and you'll, you'll have complete insight into why it is this way. So in this world, um, we, we had the problem that, for example, early, early on, that people eavesdropped on military messages even back 2,000 years ago, right? That they eavesdropped, they intercepted the message, read them, they knew what the plan was, and it gave them a strategic advantage that could have been decisive. And so they developed encryption. Um, and so there's this whole community that's built around encryption, experts, cryptographers, brilliant people, mathematicians, and they speak their own language and they focus on securing communications. And then, you know, the computer security world came up. Hey, you know, we need to worry about access control. And so a whole access control community and then intrusion detection. All these communities grew up, uh, developed in, in their own niches with their own sub languages that didn't communicate with all the other uh, communities. And it was kind of like a historical whack-a-mole. You had a problem, a community developed to try to, to fix that problem, but really didn't, didn't borrow from other communities, didn't talk as much as they needed to, to other communities. And so we ended up with a disparate set of solutions that don't integrate very well. Not, not a surprise at all. That's what I'm trying to address. Yeah, I mean, I've learned that if you call someone a cybersecurity expert on social media, be prepared for the backlash. <laughs> it's coming, and it's coming from a variety of different places. You know, you could you know, say it's a cybersecurity investigation subject matter expert or a cybersecurity intelligence or an engineer, whatever. Like, you could, you could legal expert, right? Cybersecurity legal expert. But if you, if you give someone that designation that they're a cybersecurity expert, I mean, you know, sort of giving the, uh, I guess, the... The, the, the appearance that they know everything about cybersecurity, boy, you're going to get jumped on real quick. I mean, I, um, I was talking about the cybersecurity uh, solutions landscape in the last few episodes. And we were talking about sort of, you know, how many solutions there are out there in the RSA conference and how crazy it is, with, you know, just thousands of vendors. And, and I think people are really confused and, and it, it's, it's getting really, really hard to find the solutions that you need and sort of navigate this in, this entire um, space in terms of how many solutions are on the endpoint, how many investigative solutions are out there, how many intelligence vendors. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. What is your opinion about the, the solutions landscape? Well, so it's, it's a very complicated one, right? And so the, the physical world has three dimensions. And a fourth, if you include time, it's a relatively simple world for us to navigate as humans. I mean, relatively speaking, cyberspace is what I would call hyperdimensional. It, it's hundreds of dimensions. It, it's very hard for us to understand all of the dimensions of cyberspace. And so the solution space is equally complicated. You have to address all of those hyperdimensionalities. And just as an example, right, um, the attacker, like a 14-year-old, can spend four hours of, of time, right, and do a million dollars worth of damage, right? That's an asymmetrical effect. Another example is that um, a cyber attacker can reach around the world in minutes, right? Whereas in a physical space, you, you know, you can't, there's, there's the laws of physics, right? You can't get an army from one side of the world to another without a lot of people noticing and a lot of money to, to move it. Um, so cyberspace is complicated 
and it, it has great surprises built into it. Systems are so complicated now that not even the designers understand how it works. And oftentimes, attackers find um, really, really interesting and unusual avenues, dependencies that the, the designers didn't even know about, and come at you through the weeds in places that nobody expected. And that's part of the hyperdimensionality, which requires a solution space to explicitly and intentionally cover that entire space. So you have to understand that space in order to cover it. I want to switch gears here for a second. I want to ask you about something. And whenever you're talking to cybersecurity professionals, there's this air of secrecy that everyone wants to embrace, right? Everything's a secret. Don't tell anybody anything. Don't talk to anybody. Don't go on social media. Go totally black. You know, just secret, secret, secret. And, and I, think, I think there's obviously there's good reasons for that um, that, uh, that I condone, right? But how can confidentiality in this era of secrecy backfire when you're in engineering a cybersecurity system? Yes, that's a great question. Secrecy, secrecy is a double-edged sword. Um, keeping a secret is very, very hard, and uh, it's expensive, and it excludes um, people who don't have clearances from working on a problem. So it, it, it's got a lot of uh, costs to it. Um, the other interesting thing about secrecy is that um, when you have one secret and you incorporate it into another document, that becomes secret. And so secrecy propagates, it breeds itself. And now everything's secret. And, and then it's really, really hard because now you've got a large volume of data. The other really interesting thing about secrets <clears throat> is if you label your data secret, um, it's like painting a big target on the data or the system in which it's contained. It's like adversary, come right here. This is where all the cool stuff is, right? So, so really put all of your resources in attacking this system. And so it's dangerous um, to, to operate in too much secrecy. As you say, there, there's value to secrecies. There are certain secrets that really need to be secret. What we're going to do when somebody attacks this or that, that plan strategically is important to keep secret. But um, in general, I think we keep too many secrets and, um, and we really give the adversaries more of an advantage than we give ourselves in some cases. You've worked a lot with the United States government. How, how big is the problem of overclassification of information? Uh, I mean, it's just, you know, well, what say you about the issue? Well, I, I think um, it's a big deal in, in my mind because um, I've seen a lot of it. Um, and I think there have been various uh, defense reports about it. It's, it's a serious problem. It, it's expensive. It's taxpayer dollars protecting stuff that really isn't that classified. I mean, there are formal definitions like uh, that the secret data, I don't remember the precise wording, right? But it has to do grave damage, right? If it's revealed to the United States of America, right? And so we, we really need to get back to some of those standards and, and apply them. And I think when you do, you'll find a large quantity of, of overclassified information, which really hurts our ability. It, it's like saying everything in your house is, is worth putting in a safe. So you make your house a safe, right? And then that's, a, you know, that's really expensive and inconvenient to have a combination, you know, in a vault or to get into your house every day. I think we do that to ourselves and it, it injures us more than we imagine. So one thing that a lot of organizations are doing is, is war gaming, right? And war gaming is, I think, is a very good thing. Um, I think it is. I think it, it helps uh, institutions understand their weaknesses, understand their real capabilities. It helps them sort of format better their crisis response 
plans. So what type of cyberspace exercises should one cybersecurity team undergo? I think there's a number of them. They, they often go under the names of red teaming, pen testing, or wargaming. And I think they have different purposes. So at a strategic level, you should ask the C-suite, what would, what would keep them up at night? What, what kind of harm to their system or to their mission um, would, would they really, really worry about? That's sort of step one is to understand the harm, right? I mean, for example, if you're in retail business and your systems are down between Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas, your business is done, right? I mean, that's where all the profit happens. And so um, you have to understand the harm. And, and a tabletop war game uh, experiment, just a thought experiment to say, well, what would, it, what would happen if your systems went down during this period or let your data is corrupted in that way? Um, that's, uh, that's a critical one. The other one is when, you, when somebody does a theoretical risk analysis and says, you know, from the top down, here's where your risk is, it's very, very useful to have a real hands-on attack experience team come in behind that and say, not only is this risk a probability, here's exactly how we just did it to you, right? And you know, short, stopping short of actually doing the damage, right? Here's how we just got into the core of your network, the most important part, and here's the button we would press right now to bring your entire system down for the next three weeks. And that is really helpful because I think C-suite you know, they can, they can hear the, the alarms and say, you know, this is bad, right? But they've got a lot of other things to do. But if you show them the button, right, that they press and you say, I'm one button click away from taking your entire system down, that's impressive. And uh, that gets attention and that, that galvanizes action. So I wouldn't be remiss if I didn't ask you about Bitcoin and cryptography, right? In your opinion, can cryptography really work well enough into the future to protect Bitcoin and other alternate forms of currency? Um, that's a hard question. Cryptography, cryptography is a tool and cryptography is imperfect and it's imperfect in many ways. It's, it's a mathematical thing, right? And the mathematics behind cryptography are not impervious to attack, particularly, for example, if quantum computing comes around, um, all of public key cryptography is in potential risk. Uh, and that's data that has been encrypted and, and, uh, in the past as well. So quantum cryptography, quantum sorry, quantum computing um, poses a significant risk um, to to crypt encrypted information, and so in the same way, because cryptography is imperfect, and that's not to say people shouldn't use it, right? I mean, um, it, it'll be a while before that's a problem. It's a valuable technique, but it's not the answer to all questions. And so when you have an entire currency that's built on one narrow technology working perfectly. Um, that makes me nervous. And I think that if you do a risk assessment on that currency and its dependency on cryptography, you might see that that's a risk. You know, when you start seeing billions of dollars in Bitcoins and it becomes part of the economy, it puts that economy at a significant risk and people should think twice about it. All right, Sammy, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from Sammy Sajeri after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio. The voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, the founder and president of the Cyber Defense Agency, Mr. Sammy Sagery. So, Sammy, today's business leaders and entrepreneurs have a, a proper foundation of understanding what needs to be done to protect their company's transactions, to, to protect their company's data. I mean, what, especially when it comes into consumer privacy. I mean, what, what do you think about today's business leaders? Well, I, I think they're, they're undereducated on this topic and they're a little bit behind. Business leaders have a lot of problems they have to think about, like, you know, competition, um, potential uh, crises like earthquakes damaging their buildings, fire, theft, right? So they have to understand risk. Uh, They don't necessarily have to understand the details of how to protect the building from fire or um, how, how one goes about protecting your company from theft, but they need to understand the nature of the problem. And I think right now, the C-suite, the CEOs, the CIOs um, really do not fully grasp the nature of cybersecurity threat. They don't fully grasp the potential damage to what can happen to their mission. They don't understand that 
you know, technology, one technology doesn't solve the whole problem. It's not a matter of finding one solution provider and going with that person. And, you know, there's a bunch of snake oil salesmen out there that sell what I call talismans, right? It, it looks like it solves all the problems, uh, but it really only solves a portion. And so I don't expect, expect the C-suite to become cybersecurity experts, but I think it's reasonable to expect that they become educated on the nature of the problem. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote my book in plain English. There's very little jargon in my book. A CEO, if they you know, wanted to take the time to read the 600 pages, could, right? But they certainly should read chapters one and two that would help them understand well, what is the attack space look like? What is, how do you think like an attacker? And what does the solution space look like? Just so that they can speak the language and they can defend themselves against people who really are only solving part of the problem. And they can hire the right people who are technical experts to, to address the problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I was definitely skipping around the book all over the place. I was, you know, diff, didn't read it, you know, in, in order by any means. I, I was going uh, to whatever chapter I wanted to see. Oh, this, this is what interests me or this is what I wanted to read about. Um, when, what happens when detection and deterrence of an attack don't work? I mean, you know, so it, I think a lot of people put money into the whole prevention piece. I think a lot, a lot of people are still making this mistake, believe it or not, 2018. They put all their money in their budget in the prevention piece and try to prevent something from happening when not really paying attention to the entire cybersecurity ecosystem. Yeah, and, and that's, that's a really serious problem. And uh, I'm, I'm very famous for this sort of uh, three layers of, of disks with holes in them. Um, analogy where the first disc is prevention and the second disc is detection and the third disc is tolerance and and each of these are, are kind of a class of defenses and you it, none of them is is impossible to penetrate and in fact you have to be very careful about how you orchestrate them because if you have a weakness in in your preventative techniques you should have strength behind that in the detection of, of kinds of attacks that might make it through your prevention. For example, uh, people who do what are called lifecycle attacks, which means they put malicious code into the software distribution at the application developer, so when you download the update, you now have malicious code. That will bypass your firewall, so your prevention technique cannot stop a lifecycle attack. Therefore, you must have detection techniques. And detecting a problem that's occurred is useless if you have no means to recover from it. In other words, do a, a reboot of all of your operating systems from golden copies because they're probably mostly infected at that point. So it's, it, and, then, and then make sure you tolerate it, right? So when a virus or a malware or something begins to propagate, it can only propagate to a portion of your system, and that's called tolerance. And so because attacks are so effective and because the cyberspace is so hyperdimensional, you have to have these kinds of varying things that provide depth across the breadth of attacks so that the attacker has a much harder time of succeeding because if he succeeds against one thing, he will fail against the other thing. So I, I think to be a good cybersecurity executive, you really have to understand risk. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of cybersecurity executives actually either report to risk executives or matrix into risk executives. So how does one properly assess risk mitigation in their in their security system? So you know there there are risk methodologies that are out there. NIST has a great uh, risk management framework um, that 
And it really should start at the top. I, I think one mistake I see people make is the C-suite says, oh, you know, that's for the geeks. Go have the, the IT division run a risk assessment. And, um, and if, if that even reaches their conscious level. And I think the, the real mistake there is that um, the C-suite needs to be involved in that it, it, from the get-go. So the C-suite needs to understand and say, you know, my mission is to do X. Let's say their mission is to, I don't know, maybe they're a nonprofit that distributes food, right? Um, and maybe food distribution is controlled by computers. And if they can't distribute it, maybe it goes bad in the warehouse eventually, right? And so, so they, they depend heavily on the computers for scheduling. So just making sure that they get involved in understanding the nature of the harm. So if they don't understand the what we call the risk, right, which is the likelihood of something happens times multiplied by the consequences, how bad bad can be if it happens. If they don't know that number, they don't know what to invest, and they are the people who decide what to invest. And then you can have the lower level IT experts do attack trees in a, in a very systematic way to say, well, you know, if you're worried about that strategic outcome, here's 15 ways an attacker can accomplish that. And, you know, these five ways are highly unlikely and it would be really, really hard. But, hey, these 10 ways over here, they are not so hard because we have some weaknesses in our system and therefore they are the priorities for you, Mr. CEO or Ms. CEO, to invest in in order to counter that. That gives a systematic way for them to invest to make their system better and not sort of panic to say, oh my God, there's a million ways, why even bother, right? That's not true. I mean, there are a million ways, but, but, but there, some of them are just impractical for the adversary to do. But focus your attention on what really matters. So there's a whole bunch of emerging technologies that are affecting the cybersecurity environment. You got blockchain and IoT and cloud and a whole bunch of stuff going on. There's an ever-increasing dependency and fragility between the Internet of Things in my mind. And so what strategic policies are needed to ensure cybersecurity in the virtual world now these days? Well, that's a great question. The IoT, Internet of Things, um, is going to get to the point where, you know, we're wearing 15 computers in our shirt, right? And, and, um, and there's 27 that are underneath our skin doing all sorts of cool medical diagnosis and delivery and personalized medicine, it's going to get, it's going to get incredible, right? Now I think there's probably one or two, uh, a small number of computers per person on earth. Uh, if you, if you look at sort of the chip level, it'll get to the point where there's hundreds. And so um, the problem in IOT internet of things is these devices are small and they're cheap and they're low power. And so to date, the people who design them have not put security as a priority. But then these IoT devices get hooked up to the internet, and, and so they pose a major, major risk because they're not secure, and they are a gateway to everything else. And so I think that the way to view that is kind of how we view fire codes for buildings. Um, in the old days, right, you build a building any old way you want to, and if your building went up, it was okay, your building went up, right? But if you're in a city, your building going up on fire puts everybody else's building on fire, and then you've got, you know, the Chicago conflagration, right? So um, that's why we have building codes, and that's why we have fire codes. And I think we're going to have to do something like that, where we're going to have to think carefully about liability laws, ensuring that those who put systems at risk take the cost of it, and the government's probably going to have to step in and set some minimum standards, fire codes for connection to the internet so that you do not create risk for everybody else.
So mentoring has been a big deal lately, and we talk a lot about mentoring uh, in almost any business discussion we have because it's the development of, of your talent uh, that really is going to carry the day for you. And talent is one of the biggest problems. Now, I know you've been mentored by Brian Snow, one of the former National Security Agency uh, directors over there. And when we think about, we're always just talking about, you know, how can we automate this mentoring, like, or, or automated mentoring so people can constantly be exposed to different ideas and different methods and different leadership styles even and all kinds of um, different ways of doing things in cybersecurity. How about the bad guys? Who's, who do you think is mentoring them? Well, I mean, there, there's two classes of bad guys, right? There, there's the informal, um, we'll call them organized crime or unorganized crime. And um, in the, there is a underworld of, of uh, hackers that are out there. And there's a hierarchy among this underworld. And there's the, what they were called the uber hackers, right? And these are the ones that invent creative new, new kinds of attacks. And their creation of them gives them coolness points. And they, you know, they go up in the hierarchy in this dark world. Of, uh, of black hat uh, attackers, right? The, the bad guys who attack for um, for profit and uh, for destruction. And so um, there there is a mentoring that goes on in forums that are on the black web, uh, in in uh, behind the scenes, uh, behind doors uh, meetings and and, uh, and cyber chat rooms. So there are all sorts of places where mentoring occurs in the um, in the informal attack world. Um, there's a whole other area, which is kind of the military attack world, where the mentoring happens um, very, very formally through a, a, an organized mentoring structure in the hierarchy. Um, you know, China, for example, has you know uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of cybersecurity attacker people, and there are good ones, and there's less good ones, and the the good ones uh, mentor. Um, the less good ones and bring them up to speed and make them better. And they have exercises about going after um, certain kinds of targets that are actual real targets as part of their training. Uh, we know this happens and uh, this is um, this is getting them up to speed and they have a very, very fine cadre of people through that kind of structure. So does the publishing of your book give insight and ammunition to the thieves you think? I mean, or even, even this, this radio show. I mean, this, the, a radio show like this, when the, the, you know, the thieves are able to listen to this radio show, they listen to what we're talking about and given, listen to the suggestions that we're giving to cybersecurity professionals, how to defend their networks. How, how much does this hurt us? Well, I mean, you, you can't argue that it doesn't help the adversary some, right? Because it does give insight. I mean, my, my whole chapter on, on attacks and, and how they work would certainly give uh, adversaries some clue as to parts of this tax space that maybe they personally didn't consider, but others have. Um, so yes, it gives them a slight advantage. But the question is, does the advantage that I give to the defenders, or you, uh, George, give to the, to the defenders by having a radio program like this, is the advantage that we're giving to the defenders, does it outweigh the, the slight improvement that the attackers can make by understanding the nature of attack. My opinion is based on everything I've seen and done in my career in, you know, the most sophisticated attack spaces against the most sophisticated targets in the world. 
um, is that um, that the, the disadvantage we face by not educating our defenders is way larger than the slight disadvantage we get by educating a few uh, attackers on a slightly broader attack space than they've considered. Our, our, our biggest adversaries know the entire attack space. They're aware of that. I'm not teaching anybody in the most threatening attackers um, anything new in terms of parts of the attack space. So a lot, of, a lot of people that listen to this show are trying to figure out how to navigate the cybersecurity world and how to actually break into the cybersecurity space. We have a huge talent problem and we talk about it a lot uh, from, on different episodes of the, of the program. What advice do you have for aspiring cybersecurity professionals about the industry they are about to enter? <laughs> it's, um, it's big and it's complicated. Um, and, and you you probably should start out understanding the breadth of the of the problem space. I'd also say it's going to grow, right? And so entering is a really great idea. But part of what I'm trying to do is reach out to that next generation to help them understand the principles, right? So if you come into the industry and you're in the anti in an antivirus company, you're gonna you're gonna be too narrow, and um, and you really do need to understand much more broadly the context of your solution so you can do a better job. And so that's why I'm publishing the book, and that's why I'm reaching out to the next generation by teaching courses at universities, is because I really want these next generation people, the professionals, to understand this breadth. And reading books like mine and talking to people outside of their narrow areas so they can understand the attacker mindset and the, the larger solution space and how they fit into it, I think it's essential to any new professional coming up in the field. So Sammy, when you're out there teaching, you know, what do you tell them in terms of being able to continually stay on top of the latest virus, the latest hacking technique, what the latest threats are? What do you tell them? Well, that's why principles are important. You know, when somebody says, hey, did you hear about the latest blah, blah, blah virus? I look at it and go, yeah, that's a slight variation on, you know, virus number 37 that I learned about 10 years ago. Or, holy crap, that's a very new virus. So learning principles, um, engineering principles, attack principles, I think is a way to cut through all of that, to understand that, oh, that's a variation in the stop by this class of defenses, or wow, that is new and I really need to pay attention. It really gives you the tools to really focus on what's important in the field, and there just isn't a book out there on the principles of, of cybersecurity. So I would encourage them to read about the principles and to think at the principled level and not like try to memorize everything um, about every aspect of the field, but understand broadly the principles of good design, good defense. So we got some big breaches over the last you know, few years, Equifax, Yahoo. What have you learned from some of these big, big breaches? I, well, I, I think one big thing is that companies like that externalize their risk. They don't, they're not held liable for it. In fact, some, so they get some laws passed, like through lobbyists, right, so that they're, not, they're explicitly not legally liable for the damages. And so when we do that in our society, we ensure that this kind of problem is going to happen again and more often. It's like, you know, when, when uh, the banks failed because they lent, they were too, too easy in lending money, and then we bail them all, we bail them all out, right? And, and so they're not liable. They don't suffer the consequences. So one big problem is the failure to hold them accountable uh, for the problems that they're creating. 
the other problem is to, to help them understand the, 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 the risk that they're taking when they uh, put the, collect the data, when they make it available to other people. Um, they don't understand the risks they're taking. I think if they understood them, they wouldn't do some of the things they're doing. So, Sammy, thanks for joining me to celebrate the one-year anniversary and the 50th episode of Task Force 7 Radio. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you skipping around on so many different topics. I don't think I've ever asked another guest so many different topics or questions on so many different topics before. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, and it's an honor to be on your, your anniversary show. Okay, folks, we've run out of time once again. That was pretty fast, and that year went by really fast, too. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.